Kia ora, and welcome to my daily podcast via the kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey, and this is a podcast where I look at climate change in action, housing, unaffordability, and poverty reduction. Today, I want to have a look at a big announcement from yesterday at the Glenbrook Steel Mill, which Lynn and I went out to cover. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, Energy Minister Megan Woods, and Climate Change Minister James Shaw announced at an event at the steel mill yesterday, which included the CEOs of NZ Steel and its parent, Blue Scope Steel, which is based in Australia, an announcement that the government, through the so-called Giddy Fund, which is the uh, uh, fund set up by the government to essentially subsidise large industrial concerns to reduce their emissions. And this fund, over $650 million, was set up last year as part of the emissions reduction plan uh, um, project. And um, up until now, there's been lots of bits and pieces, little things here and there, little boilers, little uh, uh, announcements, including one I covered a few weeks ago of a heat exchanger at the... um, uh, sugar factory in Auckland. But yesterday, the government announced it would spend in one chunk $140 million to pay for almost half of an electric arc furnace. Now, an electric arc furnace is something you use to put uh, recycled steel into a pot of sorts and essentially melt it down into steel, which you could then reuse, um, recreate as billets and uh, wire and um, steel plate and that sort of thing. Now, at the moment, um, about 500,000 tonnes of uh, uh, steel is sent overseas for recycling because we don't have one of these electric arc furnaces. And one of the potentials here is that The steel made in New Zealand by Glenbrook, uh, in which it takes iron sands from the West Coast, essentially mixes it up with coal, burns it, and creates steel, is one of our biggest emitters individually. And um, this electric arc furnace will be able to reduce the annual emissions by Glenbrook by 800,000 tonnes per year. Now, just to put that in context, in context, just to put that in context, that is about 1% of all of our emissions every year. And over the uh, budget period from 2026 to 2030, and you remember we have these specific emissions reductions budgets to achieve our aims under the Carbon Zero Act, we are required to reduce our uh, emissions by a certain amount and this particular intervention uh, will uh, essentially provide 5.3% of the entire emissions reduction for that period from 2026 to 2030. Another way to put it into context that the 800,000 tonnes per year is about the same as removing 300,000 cars from the road. So all of the cars in Christchurch. And the effective price of buying these emissions reductions for the government is about $16.20 per tonne. 
Now, to give you an idea, the current price of emissions trading credits per tonne is about $65-$50 to $65 on New Zealand's emissions trading scheme market at the moment. It can be much higher in overseas markets, so the European Union market, well over 100 euros per tonne. So um, the problem here for New Zealand is that uh, under the Paris Agreement, we have to reduce our emissions dramatically. And a report from Treasury that came out in April estimated that we are behind the curve for our emissions reductions. And to meet our requirements under the Paris Agreement, we are going to have to buy an awful lot of emissions credits in offshore markets, which, by the way, haven't been created yet. And so Treasury is estimating the cost is looking at somewhere between $3.3 billion with a carbon price of about $44 per tonne, or up to $12.8 billion uh, with a carbon price of over $200 a tonne. So it depends on how much we have to pay per tonne to get those credits. So when you're looking at it from a government and a fiscal point of view, if you're looking at future liabilities for the Crown, then you have to think about how do I reduce my emissions as a country to avoid having to pay up to $12.8 billion to overseas countries to make reduction, uh, make emissions reductions. Things like you know buying uh, credits from Vanuatu for planting a forest or buying credits from Indonesia for shutting down a coal mine or something like that. Now, New Zealand has bought these credits in the past. Unfortunately, they've been discredited, uh, pun intended. Uh, we bought a whole bunch of very cheap and dodgy credits, frankly, from the Russian mafia in the um, mid-2000s, uh, prices of less than 20 cents per tonne. This is for all the factories in Russia and in Eastern Europe that closed down because of the uh, uh, deindustrialization of those um, communist, former communist states after the Berlin Wall came down. And uh, this really um, was discredited, and um, when uh, Labour got back in again in 2017, um, there was a stop to the use of these credits. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is that uh, the government um, has been accused by Christopher Luxon of engaging in corporate welfare by spending $140 million worth of money, you could argue taxpayers' money, although... All of that money has come from emissions trading scheme credits. Effectively, when New Zealanders have bought their um, petrol and diesel, some of that money will have gone back to the government in the form of emissions trading scheme credits. So it is taxpayers' money, I suppose you could call it, but it has been cordoned off uh, from the emissions trading scheme revenues. This is important, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So... The opposition is saying this is outrageous. Uh, New Zealand Steel is part of a very profitable Australian company called Blue Scope Steel. They could afford to build this electric arc furnace on their own, and um, there's no way that um, hard Kiwi battlers should be subsidising a big Australian multinational. And on the face of it, that sounds like a fair criticism. However, when you dig through the details a bit, and you look at the National Party's position overall, 
Then it starts to unravel. And in my view, Christopher Luxon has stepped straight into a trap set up for him by Labour with this policy. So, remember that our emissions trading scheme effectively provides free credits for some of the big industrial and agricultural emitters. Now, they include New Zealand Steel, Rio Tinto and Fonterra. Now, when the emissions trading scheme was set up, those big emitters, like New Zealand Steel and Fonterra, said to the government, and this was agreed on by the opposition, essentially, that um, these big emitters had to compete with other emitters overseas who were not having to pay for their emissions. So they got a free pass. Now, that means that there's actually no real incentive for New Zealand Steel to reduce its emissions because it gets them for free under the emissions trading scheme. So the implication of Christopher Luxon's comments that uh, the government is engaging in corporate welfare suggests that either it really expected uh, New Zealand Steel to buy this itself, even though there were no incentives for New Zealand Steel to do this, or it wants New Zealand Steel uh, to have to pay for its emissions. Now, that um, is a new, a new national policy and uh, certainly is consistent with the views of the likes of the New Zealand Initiative, which essentially says we don't need to intervene in the economy with anything other than the emissions trading scheme. You just let the price rise until the pips squeak and you'll be able to reduce your emissions. But to do that, you have to include all of the people who are currently exempted. That includes the agricultural sector and the likes of New Zealand Steel and Rio Tinto. And as I discovered in questions at the news conference and afterwards, New Zealand Steel is saying they would not have built this electric arc furnace if it was not for the government's assistance in the form of the subsidies. And it's very clear that if New Zealand Steel was inside the emissions trading scheme and had to buy its emissions credits as everyone else does, and as implied by the question from Christopher Luxon, then it would shut down. And literally there are thousands of jobs dependent in South Auckland on those jobs at Glenbrook. And Glenbrook provides 70% of the steel that we produce, uh, that we use in New Zealand. So all of the steel for all the infrastructure, the buildings, the houses, everything, 70% of that comes from uh, New Zealand Steel's plant at Glenbrook. It would mean, too, that if there was some sort of, you know, shutdown in global trade and we couldn't get access to steel from, I don't know, China or Japan or India or Australia then um, we wouldn't have any steel. Uh, and this is a quite rightly a resilience um, issue and something that we'd have to think about strategically. So the problem here for Christopher Luxon is in making this knee-jerk and easy criticism of a piece of corporate welfare has in effect fallen into the trap of saying that A, National was thinking of putting a lot of the big emitters into the scheme, which I don't think it really is, and B, that it um, would be quite happy for New Zealand Steel to shut down, which I'm sure, sure, also sure it's not likely to want. And I suspect in the coming days there'll have to be some clarifications and rowbacks from Christopher Luxon. And begs the question, does he understand 
how our emissions trading scheme works and who is currently exempted from using the scheme. Because turns out, of course, there's a bunch of internationally exposed emitters in New Zealand who use the scheme. Obviously Rio Tinto, obviously New Zealand Steel, obviously Fonterra, and obviously Air New Zealand. Air New Zealand gets free credits for its international international travel, its fuel used on those international routes because it is competing with other airlines that don't have to buy credits in an emissions trading scheme. So um, that's a question I'm keen to ask um, Christopher Luxon. Does he want Air New Zealand to have to buy credits for its international travel? Uh, Because I'm sure he knew, as the former CEO of Air New Zealand, that um, Air New Zealand was exempt under the ETS from having to buy credits for international travel. So um, this will come back to haunt um, Christopher Luxon, I think. Now, the other question I was keen to ask at the news conference is around um, the overall New Zealand response to the need to reduce emissions. Now, you've got to step back a bit and think about the whole issue of climate change and who it affects and who will pay in the long run and where we are. In effect, New Zealand has barely, if at all, reduced its emissions since the Kyoto Protocol came in. And we are behind, according to the Climate Commission, the necessary trajectory to reduce our emissions in line with not just Kyoto or the Zero Carbon Agreement, but also the um, Paris Accord. And that's because successive governments have effectively not taken the hard political decisions to tax emissions, to um, uh, invest in infrastructure, to essentially help New Zealanders uh, reduce their emissions and to take some of the load off future generations because it's inconceivable that somehow if we miss our targets that it will not hurt us. There is clearly an international agreement that we've signed up to. Now we could renege on that, but uh, you can bet that the European Union, the uh, China, the United States, Australia would immediately say, ah, ah, look, you guys are um, playing silly buggers on the climate issue. We're not going to import uh, your meat or uh, whatever else that you're exporting because this is poisoned in so far as that you've reneged on your climate agreements. So um, we will have to pay. And Treasury, as I mentioned earlier, has estimated that it could cost up to $12.8 billion. That's another interesting question for National. Would they be quite happy to spend $12.8 billion on international credits and not the sort of dodgy ones that the Russian mafia sold the key government? So um, this is um, uh, some some interesting... um, uh, political uh, jiggery-pokery going on here between National and Labour over the emissions trading scheme. But the broader question is, how should we approach it? What would we be doing if we were being fair in an intergenerational sense? Remember, we haven't invested for the last 30 years. We're behind on our task. We should be doing a lot more investment a lot faster, doing a lot more to reduce our emissions a lot faster to avoid this financial liability, apart from anything else, from slamming into future generations of taxpayers, and let alone uh, deal with the mitigation of um, the climate change we've already got. As we heard last week, we're virtually three or four, five years away from 
being at 1.5 degrees of warming, which is where people start to worry about a cascading uh, uh, series of events which blow out warming to 3, 4, 5 degrees, which most people think would be catastrophic for human life on the planet. So um, we're almost there with 1.5 degrees, and what do we do in this intergenerational sense? Now, when you think about intergenerational issues, if you um, have a balance sheet, um, let's say if we want to talk about it from a household point of view, when you are young and when you know that you're going to have costs in the future, what you tend to do is take on some debt, invest in an asset that you're going to use for years to come and that you'll be able to service the debt on. So this is what a mortgage is effectively. And so when people take on enormous mortgages in their late 20s through their 30s to buy a home, no one blinks an eye. This is perfectly appropriate debt for young people who are going to have incomes to pay the interest on that debt and repay it over uh, many years to come. Now, obviously, if someone is in their late 60s and... Um, taking on debt, uh, that's A, the bank wouldn't wouldn't allow it because they know that there's a chance they may not be working and able to service the debt. And then the question is, if they take on that debt, who's going to pay for it later on? Are the kids going to pay the mortgage? Well, obviously, that's not what happens. The bank doesn't allow that. But um, when you think about it from a, a national point of view, a crown point of view, by not investing in reducing emissions, we are effectively building up a liability for future generations. So it may not seem like we're taking on a debt, but we are actually. And we know the size of the debt. It's up to $12.8 billion. So to avoid taking on those liabilities, the way to do it is to invest now in actual infrastructure and actual subsidies to reduce the emissions liability in future. And um, to do that, you probably use your balance sheet, wouldn't you? Your ability to borrow money to effectively pull forward the investment and reduce future liabilities. However, that's not how our government has approached it um, for at least a decade. We have seen the emissions trading scheme, the revenues from that, and the spending that we're going to do on the Climate Emergency Response Fund as a fiscally neutral exercise. So what we're saying is that the money that comes in through the emissions trading scheme in the form of effectively a tax on consumers and some businesses who aren't internationally connected, that that money would be recycled into efforts on the climate. And that's what the Climate Emergency Response Fund is. And it was set up a couple of years ago in uh, an attempt to sort of pull and cordon off the emissions trading scheme revenues and create a fiscal envelope, a limit, if you like, so that effectively the government doesn't have to borrow to uh, address the climate. So the big question here is, is this actually appropriate in an intergenerational sense? We're essentially choosing not to use the Crown's balance sheet to deal with future issues and to soften the blow for future generations. It would be like saying, um, we know you'll need railways and roads and schools and hospitals in 100 years' time, and typically the way to um, fund these things is to borrow money now and repay the cost over a very long period to avoid the um, shock in 
20, 30 years' time when future taxpayers suddenly have to come up with $10 billion for a bunch of hospitals or roads or whatever it is that have suddenly failed because they're old and decrepit. And um, that's the essential problem here. We should be using our balance sheet to, A, rectify an intergenerational transfer of wealth, but also, B, just to avoid the financial liabilities that are coming at us, as Treasury has warned. So uh, I uh, went to the news conference um, aiming to ask a few of these questions and uh, started off in particular with the question about buying these credits offshore. Because one of the interesting things about this agreement is that it has effectively shown that you can buy, if you like, emissions reductions domestically by buying, as we've seen, these emissions reductions from big emitters. And the cost of this is incredibly low. So the $140 million that the government is spending reduces carbon emissions by 800,000 tonnes per year for a large number of years. The effective abatement cost, so the cost of buying those those emissions reductions, is $16.20 a tonne. Now, when you consider that the current price is anywhere from $50 to $65 a tonne, that's a good deal. And um, if you're being serious about emissions reduction, that's something you should be doing all over the place. Now, at the moment, the assumption is that we won't do it domestically and we'll have to go overseas and pay some someone in Paraguay or uh, Vanuatu a bunch of money to plant some trees or reduce their emissions, and that it could cost anywhere from $44 a tonne to two, over $200 a tonne. Well, when you can buy them domestically at $16 a tonne, why wouldn't you? And that's the, the question I asked, starting with, uh, starting with a question for Chris Hipkins. And then after that uh, exchange, I asked the question around the fiscal envelope problem and the need to use the Crown's balance sheet. So here's that, uh, those exchanges at the news conference yesterday. Prime Minister, um, you've said there's still money to be spent overseas on overseas credits. Why not create... Um, more giddy-style funds that invest in buying tonnes of carbon here uh, rather than spending it overseas. For example, you, you could be you know, um, rolling out electric bikes or other things which actually reduce emissions here rather than spending overseas. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out us making further investments in giddy-type programmes in the future. Um, one of the things that you will note, though, Bernard, is that the, um, one of the schemes that we have not continued with was the um, you know, colloquially known as the cash for clunkers scheme, because actually in terms of the investment required relative to the number of um, tonnes of emissions reduced, um, it, it didn't stack up anywhere near as well as something like this does. This stacks up incredibly well in terms of what we get for our money. So uh, you know we're, we're still going to be looking to get the best bang for our buck. Do you still expect, though, to be spending billions on overseas on credits um, to achieve the Paris targets? I know that the, the Minister for Climate Change has a particular uh, view on that. Well, we don't want to be. Uh, you know, we have created a rod for our own back. When the government um, uh, increased our target just before Glasgow, um, there was a Cabinet decision that was made at the same time that the primary source of that has to be domestic. So I think New Zealand climate change policy previously had been uh, let's pay other people to do it so that we don't have to. We've inverted that uh, and we've said that we need to find every tonne domestically and let's um, invest in our own domestic transition before we uh, exercise overseas options. Now the advice that we've had from the Commission is that it's very hard to do all of that 
in the seven years that are remaining to us of this decade, which is, remember, it's a 2030 target. Um, and so, you know, we are exploring uh, other options, but they are um, quite simply, you know, that, that we have to treat them uh, as a sort of fallback option after we've exhausted all of our domestic options. Just on the um, overall climate emissions strategy, which is a fiscally neutral one, where you don't use the Crown's balance sheet to deal with an intergenerational problem, why don't you use the Crown's balance sheet to more aggressively reduce emissions and choose emissions reduction over debt reduction? Well, one of the things that we can do is make sure that the decisions that we are taking in terms of where government's spending its money across the board, we're actually doing that in a way that contributes to our overall climate change goals. So investments that the government is making in, in areas such as building and construction, for example, has a high decarbonisation focus to it. Um, things that we're doing uh, in terms of the broader public sector, the future investments that we're making in there, of course we, we place a climate change lens over that. Um, there are other things that we're doing, the, the clean car discount scheme, for example. Uh, we're tackling this on a whole range of different fronts. Yeah. And if you had not been able to put in this arc furnace, yes. would New Zealand Steel have been able to be a long-term viable proposition in New Zealand? Because there's been some discussion you might have to shut down. Our other options would have been to look at the existing iron-making process and look at things like natural gas or hydrogen to decarbonise the iron-making process. Now, the issue with that is it's not technically and commercially viable to do that, so we're still, we're still investigating that. The electric arc furnace solution just brings those decarbonisation or reducing carbon emissions much closer. So it's a viable technology. We can act quickly and reduce the carbon emissions. Accordingly. And how are you going to get rid of the other 55% by 2050? So look, we'll, we'll look to increase our uh, scrap ratio as a pro proportion, so we'll reduce our coal proportionally, and we'll continue to look at decarbonising our existing iron-making process from iron sand through the use of hydrogen and natural gas and other direct-reducing um, processes as we go forward. So we, st we, we still have those options available to us as we go forward. This is the first step of a significant reduction in the overall um, and do you need a car scrappage scheme to get the scrap that you need to, to run the As I said, the look, there's 500,000 tonnes of scrap exported currently from New Zealand. So we've got 500,000 tonnes of scrap available as to today, theoretically, to, to reduce our sort of carbon footprint. So we can get to a much lower level of carbon from where we are today. Minister Shaw, with your um, Green Party hat on, putting the Green Party hat on, um, do you think that we can um, achieve emissions reduction fast enough with a fiscally neutral approach to this? Well, uh, Bernard, I'm not the Minister of Finance, uh, and I've said before governments have uh, choices uh, that they can make. Um, the important thing is that we get started, and, and like I keep saying, we've taken a long time to get started, and today's announcement is a massive step in our journey. So, James Shaw there, um, trying not to th throw the Prime Minister in it in a public uh, press conference, um, but he himself has um, said in the past that uh, there needs to be the use of Crown's balance sheet to deal with these intergenerational issues. Now, you may have heard another voice in there, a lovely Welsh lilting voice. That is the, That was the CEO of New Zealand Steel, Robin Davies, who uh, was um, talking talking earlier there. So there we have it, um, the latest on climate change and the politics of climate change, the finances of climate change, which I'm keen to keep an eye on. 
I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. Ka kite anō.